Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us for episode 780 with David McRaney. David has studied in depth how minds change and how you can change them, and he does such a great job. So you'll learn one, why facts alone can't persuade others. Two, a simple question to make you more persuasive. And three, a step-by-step guide to changing even the most stubborn of minds. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've mentioned, please visit us at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP780. Interesting note on this one, we had a lot of fun and our calendars, I guess, were open. So we went long and I've broken this into two pieces. The first one is a typical episode and the second is a role play that we did in which I role play the character of someone who is skeptical about climate change and we watch David go through a systematic process by which he is doing some mind-changing. So we can see what that looks like as a demo. So if that's of interest to you, in the interest of having this episode not be way longer than the others, that is in a second part. So you can see that right next to this episode in your podcast playing app and tap it there. Big thanks to David for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. So now, here is David. David, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thank you so much for having me. It is so cool to be here. I'm excited to talk about your book, How Minds Change, The Surprising Science of Belief, Opinion, and Persuasion. But first things first, David, we got to know about your stint as a strong man in the circus. <laughs> How in the world did you even know this? I feel like I'm on hot ones. That's one of those deep, <laughs> that's one of those Deep cuts. I was at a Renaissance fair uh, a couple of years. It was right before COVID, and the I'm a I am a giant dude. I'm six two, and they were like, "Hey, do you want to? We need a strong man." They pointed right at me, and I was like, "Sure, I'm into it." So I I got up on stage, and it was one of those acts where they you have an acrobat climb up your body and then stand on your shoulders, and you have to hold them up, and they mm. juggle flaming objects back and forth with their assistant who is inside a uh, shopping cart that's slowly rolling away. And uh, I had to do all sorts of action. It really was hard because I was like, if I mess this up, uh, one of us is going to be horribly injured. I'll be covered in fire. It's a renaissance fair in Louisiana. So 
it's just going to be a YouTube video. It's not like I'm going to, there's going to be medical attention that's going to rush over to our aid. It's going to be one of those things that people <laughs> share online and say, don't do that. So that's what I did. It was fun. I'm into it. So that's pretty high stakes. It, it sounds like there wasn't a lot of prep. You just launched right into it. Yeah, it sounded fun. I mean, I was wearing a, <laughs> a full kilt and uh, and I just was in the mood to do weird stuff at a Renaissance fair. So if that says, if that speaks to my character in general, uh, yeah, I'm down to do crazy stuff if it seems like there's going to be a good story involved. And uh, so I finally get to tell it. This is, I think, the first time I've told anybody. Ah, well, we're honored. <laughs> <laughs> my immediate friends and family. Beautiful. Well, thank you for sharing. And, and I think that really does set a great foundation <laughs> somehow <laughs> for the topic to come. Let's talk about how minds change. And, and could you kick us off with a particularly surprising or counterintuitive or, or fascinating discovery you've made about us humans and our brains and persuadability while putting together this book? One is the idea that humans are flawed irrational, which I used to talk about all the time. And the other that some people are, are completely unreachable and unpersuadable, which I also used to say, I said that, uh, I talk about it at the beginning of the book that I was at a lecture once and someone tried, someone asked for my advice on reaching out to their father who had gotten into a pretty deep conspiracy theory. And I, at the time, this was years ago, said, I don't think you, you have any hope here. This person isn't willing to change their mind. And I never felt good about that. I never liked that answer, and then I witnessed the incredible shift in public opinion and attitudes towards same-sex marriage and LGBTQ issues in general in the United States, leading to the Supreme Court decision, and interested in that, I started investigating it and found my way to the work of both Tom Stafford and Hugo Mercier, who are in the book and who have been on my podcast and who I, at this point, know them well enough to like be able to, to chit chat. Hugo Mercier has a great book called The Enigma of Reason, which I highly recommend. And it is an explanation of the interactionist theory of human uh, cognition, which is his work with Dan Sperber. The simplest explanation of that is humans, we evolved over time to reach consensus towards common goals, common courses of action, to share worldviews, to be more effective in groups. and we have these two cognitive mechanisms underlied by biological mechanisms that one is for producing propositions and one is for evaluating propositions. And they work differently. And oftentimes we'll find ourselves in environments where we're only producing arguments. Often we're doing it in isolation and it's different from evaluating arguments. And then that combines with what Tom Stafford has put forth a new a model called the truth wins theory. Everyone who wrote books about this sort of thing. There was sort of a, a new hotness in the world of pop science, which was humans are irrational and flawed. And sort of the idea that, you know, we, the same reason we lock our keys in our car and send emails to the wrong person uh, scales up to uh, climate change and things like that. The most of that research, even though it was done on lots of people, those people were researched in isolation. And that means that we were looking at what an individual does and how an individual comes up with solutions to problems or reasons for thinking something or justifications and so on. And yeah, individuals do that in a very biased and lazy way. But if you give people the opportunity to approach those same things as a group, you get a, a, a much better outcome. And so those two things together were the first sort of torches in the distance that I that I walked toward as I move through all sorts of on-the-ground reporting with 
uh, activists and cults and pseudo cults and conspiracy theory communities and experts who study all these things, uh, leading up to arc of really shifting my view on how to not only how not only how minds change whether or not it's through persuasion, but also how persuasion actually can can work in a way that actually brings results. So that all sums up into one big epiphany for David McRaney, which is. I don't think anyone's unreachable anymore. I don't think anyone is unpersuadable. I think that the frustration we often feel when we are approaching someone who doesn't seem to uh, want to change their mind or resists it deeply, uh, that frustration is better directed at ourselves for not approaching them in a way that would help them arrive at a different conclusion or see things differently. In the book, I use the metaphor of it's like trying to reach the moon with a ladder. And when that doesn't work, assuming the moon is unreachable, I think uh, you try to reach out to people who disagree with you or see things much differently than you using improper uh, approaches and techniques. You might assume they're unreachable, but you just need to to change the way you go about doing things. So that's my long-winded, super giant answer to your uh, great opening question. Thank you. Fundamentally, why do we humans tend to believe some things and not others? I, I was intrigued you, you mentioned got cults and conspiracy theories. I watched the documentary Behind the Curve about oh, the yeah. flat earth stuff. I got and, to help with that a little bit. Yep. And that was intriguing. <laughs> so then, and I'm just so in, fascinated as to why is it that some of us <laughs> will accept some things and reject other things? And like, what's that about? <laughs> Behind the curve, that's great. You know, I um, I didn't know that I contributed to that documentary until someone told me that I was in the credits. It also led to, of all things, there was a festival in Sweden that was similar to like South by Southwest. They invited me and Mark Sargent on stage to talk about his flat eartherness. And oh. I used one of the techniques from the book on stage. Otherwise, I wasn't really that good at it. Like I, I better, I'm much better at it now. But that all, that's a side story that came out of that documentary. I love that documentary. One of the reasons why this is something that's difficult to get your mind around is that some of the same assumptions that lay people like ourselves would make in this, even though we have all this experience with people we've tried to to, to argue with over the years, are the same assumptions that scientists made when they first started studying this in earnest in the 1940s. In the 1940s, the they were trying to understand propaganda. They're trying to understand, they were worried about what the Nazis were up to with propaganda. And the United States was trying to figure out, should we fight propaganda? Or should we make propaganda? What works, what doesn't? And And there were already social scientists who were interested in marketing and advertising and messaging and all that kind of thing. And they ended up making this thing called uh, Why We Fight. You can watch it on YouTube. It's this very long American propaganda piece that opens up with the Nazi propaganda and says, look at this. This is bad. And why are we fighting this war? And it says, like, is it because of this? And they show all these places getting bombed and tanks rolling through. And they say, no, no, no. And then eventually they show, like, the Statue of Liberty and the Magna Carta and stuff like that and say, the, this is why we fight. Light torches of, of freedom that are being snuffed out around the world. And they had this whole idea, we're going to show this. They showed it to the president. The president was like, this is so good. I wanted this in every theater in the United States. And they went to boot camps and things like that and, and showed them the film. And they measured the impact of it. 
And what they discovered there is something that we all often discover when we try to get people to see things our way. We throw a bunch of facts at them, a bunch of links. We tell them to go watch these videos, read these books. And what they found was there were these misconceptions that they were worried about. One was that the war would be over in just a couple of weeks, that the German military was very small, that uh, the UK wasn't doing a very good job of defending itself. We were just coming in to save them. They wanted to get rid of these misconceptions. And they found that the the film did a great job of do of doing that. It did correct people's incorrect beliefs. The facts were in their mind were updated, but their attitudes were not changed in any which way whatsoever. All their opinions going in about the war, things like it'll be over in this amount of time, or their negative or positive uh, evaluations of things, no change. And that led to a new wing of of research into persuasion in which we started to actually think of categories of mental constructs that were separate from one another. Attitudes aren't the same as beliefs. Beliefs aren't the same as attitudes. Then you have values and norms and opinions. And these things are, are interchangeable terms. And we're just kind of, uh, talking in our lay language, but they are not interchangeable. when We start trying to divide them into mental constructs. So what often happens when you're trying to change someone's mind and it's not working out for you is that you hear them present a claim or a proposition or idea and you try to change one aspect of it instead of the other aspect, which is actually driving their eagerness to present this to you. Most often happens is someone will say something, I think the president is a great president, or I think the president is a bad president, whoever that might may be. And you try to change their mind about that. It feels like you're trying to change a belief. But what you're really trying to change there is an attitude because they're telling you their their positive or negative evaluation of the of the person. And though there may be beliefs involved, the there's a sort of assumption that if or it could be anything, it could be climate change, it could be fracking, it could be gun control, it could be whether the earth is flat. We often believe that it's the facts led to our feelings on the matter. Like we're Gandalf or something. We go to the bottom of our uh, castle and we uh, go to the scroll room and read all the scrolls. And then finally you hold up a finger and go, mm -hmm, yes, this is what I believe about blah, blah, blah. It feels like we did that contemplation. But what usually is taking place is a person has a very strong emotional uh, reaction to this that, that is a combination of motivations and drives and attitudes that come from experience. They come from their social group that they feel uh, aligned with. They come from maybe motivations like, you know, my job or, or my reputation. And then that leads them on a search for evidence that will support the feeling that they have. And that's motivated reasoning in a nutshell. They, they, they are looking for reasons that will justify the foundational state that they're in that we don't usually recognize is that foundational state. So when you approach someone at the level of their conclusions, you're in your level of your conclusions, you're really asking them to interpret evidence based off of your feelings and your attitudes and your emotions. And if the end goal in that is I'm right and you're wrong, and then their goal is that to prove that, no, no, I'm right and you're wrong, there's very low chances of that actually getting anywhere versus a conversation in which, hey, I noticed that we disagree on this. I wonder why we disagree. And then you investigate almost as a team to try to solve the mystery of where your disagreement starts. And you, in that, you may find that there's sort of a Venn diagram of overlapping attitudes and values, and you can find something in there that will shift both of your opinions at the end of the conversation. So that's my very long answer to your question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, and why do we resist? Because evolutionarily speaking, it's dangerous to change your mind if you don't need to. 
And, but it's also dangerous to not change your mind if you should. So either one of those outcomes could lead to you getting eaten or not having enough food to survive the winter. So we're very careful about going through assimilation and accommodation, sort of the two mechanisms of changing our mind. We do this so carefully considering all these possible motivations that turn it into a risk versus reward scenario. And we sort of evaluate the risk of it. And the risks just simply outweigh the rewards in a lot of situations for a lot of people. Oh, yeah, so much there. So when you talk about Mark Sargent and risks, I remember there was a piece toward the end of, of that documentary, Behind the Curve, mm-hmm. in which he said, oh, I couldn't leave Flat Earth now if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so like all of his, his entire social network and reputation is sort of built around this. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we have a, a whole boatload of, of reasoning there to that you're motivated to to kind of find and dispute it's like well this experiment didn't work out this way because of you know this and so it's like mm-hmm. he's in a spot where it's very difficult to accept evidence to the contrary of his beliefs because of what that will cost him so mm-hmm. that's the spot that is intriguing and the person may not know why they believe this I mean, or feel so strongly if you want to like put it in terms that actually fit what's going on like why do you feel that emo- that pseudo emotional thing of of certainty? Why when why when you see this news story do you uh, accept it unquestioningly, versus when you see this news story you feel skepticism, and then another person has the has a, a completely inverted response to that, and you take something like vaccines. Like I I spent a lot of time with anti vaxxers but they were before the, the before COVID anti vaxxers and I spent time with the people who studied the CDC response and why it wasn't working. But this is with MMR vaccines. The people who are against it often would say that they're afraid that it causes autism. If you ask that person, why do you not want to get your child vaccinated? They may produce as a reason to, for you, I, I fear that it may cause autism. And, and I've read all this stuff and I really believe it. And that, so I'm not getting my child vaccinated. But they've, that's likely not the actual reason. That's their justification for not doing it. But the reason they're not doing it is so deep, they may not even recall the beginning of their quest to find evidence to justify it. I mean, there's so many things that go into that. Usually there's a, all the research suggests that it's a, there's sort of a, a, a moral slider setting in that person where they're thinking, this takes away my agency. I'm fearful of institutions. I don't trust uh, governments and medical institutions. I don't have a lot of knowledge about these foreign uh, liquids and, and they, they seem kind of disgusting to me in some way and they're scary. And then you're gonna take all of that and put it into a, a syringe and to take a needle on the end of it and stick it into my child without my ability to say no. That's really what's motivating them. That's this strong negative attitude toward all of that. And then you try, then they've gone on a search for what supports this strong negative attitude? Oh, yes, uh, this autism thing, I totally accept that. That is a good reason for me to feel this way. It, it really justifies it. And then when you get into a discussion with them and you might be tr- like be presenting your evidence and they're presenting their evidence, they're saying to you, this is why I believe this. But that's not actually why they believed it. That was some sort of justification they found la- later. So they're actually going in reverse in the re- reverse direction of the processing that was there. And this is what we do in every domain. And when, when things are uncertain, ambiguous, scary, anxiety laden, you know what I mean? Yes. And I think I like that little listing that you gave in terms of, of these are the domains in which that occurs. And then what's tricky is when it's so, yeah, you say it's scary. Let's hear those lists again. It's scary. It's ambiguous. What are some other ingredients that yeah, it's, are it's, right? There's, there's uncertainty in there. Yeah. There's also 
you know, we don't know what we don't know. So there is a large pocket of ignorance as to how this, any of these things work. And yeah. But you don't really know that you're, that you don't know those things, but you do feel some sort of uncertainty because of it. Yes. There's also uncertainty of outcome. There's, it's ambiguous as to what's happening. And there's all these anxiety triggers in there. I mean, anyone is anxious over having something put in their body that they did not themselves, like, uh, were not involved in the creation of it. And then there's all these agency problems. Like you, I'm, t you're taking my ability to determine, you know, you're taking something away from me when it comes to the care of my child. You're also doing something to me. I'm not the one holding the syringe. There are dozens of things in there. And then there's just the general fearfulness of institutions. Some people, there's a little bit of nature, there's nature nurture here. Some people come into the world already somewhat fearful in that way. And then life experiences compound that. They, and that there's, some of those are very reasonable. You know, there maybe have been things that happen in their lives. They have a really good reason to not trust the government slash medicine slash so-and-so-and-so. And I advocate in the book for cognitive empathy for this. Like this person has no choice but to feel that way. No different than you have no choice but to feel if you're the, on the other side of it. You can imagine the question being directed at yourself, is, which is, why are you so trustful of all of this? And it would be, yeah. might be difficult for you to articulate why you so readily go, but I trust this. I trust science. I trust doctors. And that's what you should offer on the, to them as well. They may not really be able to articulate why they feel that way. I think you're nailing it here because I find myself right, really stuck in the middle with regard to that domain of, of sort of trust authorities, distrust authorities. Like, I think it's, I'm thinking about times when I had to, I had to get my roof replaced. And so I was having a hard time getting any roofer to show up. It's like, darn it, I'm just going to call a dozen right now, and one of them is going to show up. Well, four of them showed up. They gave me completely different perspectives. And I thought, wait a minute, you're the roofing experts. I know nothing of roofs, and I'm supposed to make the call on which one is correct and which one is incorrect. That's tricky. All right. Well, so we've laid the groundwork in terms of what's up with <laughs> minds changing and not changing. Can you lay it out for us then? ideally with some cool stories and examples, what <laughs> are some workable strategies we can use to persuade folks? And, and I'm thinking particularly in professional contexts as we're being awesome at our job here. So lay it on us. How is it done? So in the beginning of the book, I go, I hang out with 9-11 uh, truthers, conspiratorial communities. I go hang out with deep canvassers who are this activist group in Los Angeles. They go door to door, knocking on doors and change people's minds about wedge issues in about 20 minutes. I spend time with the researchers at NYU who studied the dress, which uh, helped me understand the nature of disagreement at the level of neurons and uh, flat earthers and all sorts of stuff. And Westboro Baptist Church, I visited Westboro Baptist Church, talked to people who left, went to their Valentine's Day Sunday services, and also went to the building across the street that uh, protests them regularly, the Rainbow House. One of the things that I found in all this was people who have techniques that actually work and have techniques that are ground, that are supported by the research, most of them had never met each other and weren't aware of each other. And most of them had never actually looked into the science behind what they were doing. They just were doing a bunch of A-B testing and going with what worked and throwing away what didn't. I thought of it like if you wanted to make an airplane, like before airplanes were invented and you were trying to make something that flew, uh, no matter where you were in the world or what you made it out of, it would pretty much look the same because you were dealing with the same physics on the same planet. Mm -hmm. Persuasion techniques that really work all look about the same and work the same way because brains work pretty much the same way in this dynamic. And that's because we're all sharing the same DNA that's making using the same proteins to make the same brain structures that were all influenced by natural selection and so on. That 
leads me to if I was going to give you something that I feel like uh, demonstrates this well, I would use street epistemology because it's I think it's the easiest one to understand up front and it helps you understand the others really well. And you can apply it in a business setting uh, in a workplace really easily. The first thing you need to do is in when it comes to if you want to change somebody's mind, my step zero in all of this is ask yourself, why do you want to do that? I find there's a lot of uh, value in introspecting as to why it is important to you to persuade someone in one way or another. Try to make sure that you do have, at least believe you have, the moral high ground, the ethical high ground, or you are factually correct. And then investigate as, as to whether or not that is so before you enter into this space. Then try to determine what it is that you want to change on the other side. Is it a, is it a belief, is it an attitude, or is it a value? A belief is an estimation of something being true or false a fact-based claim. Attitude is an evaluation of positive or negative, good or bad. And a value would be, where should we put this in the hierarchy of things that we were willing to put our time, money, and effort into? Kind of like important or not important. Right. So so establish that first, and then you can, you'll be much better off as to which one of these techniques works best. Street epistemology works really best when it's a fact-based claim, like we use for anything. So the order of operations goes like this. First, build rapport. Rapport is important because we are social primates, and the thing that we care about even more than our own mortality is whether or not our reputation is at stake in any dynamic. We, If you communicate anything to the other person that can be interpreted as you should be ashamed <laughs> for thinking, feeling, or believing X, that's the end of that conversation. You are now placed in the category of them or you're just considered a dangerous person who might get them ostracized or might get them canceled or something to that effect. Nobody wants to be on the end of that dynamic. So you may not intend to do it. You may not have that in your heart, but it's very easy to get somebody to feel that way. It's very easy to communicate it. If And you may actually do feel that way. You need to make sure you establish rapport. The same way, like, I'm sure we all have friends that we can go have drinks with. And we don't agree with half of the things they think about the world, but it's okay. They're our friend. Like they go on our zombie survival apocalypse squad, even though we don't agree with them on everything. And we might even see the same movie and they hate it and we love it. And we're okay with that because we have that trust as social primates. So you need to establish that up front. Do what you have to do. If you have a relationship with that person, like it's your parent or your or family member or someone in your job who you've had a lot of bad conversations with over the years. It may take a while to build that rapport. It may not be able to, you may not be able to start this process until you've had a couple of meetings and hangouts where you, that rapport is reestablished. So it's vital that that's there first. Otherwise they'll stay in what psychologists call the pre-contemplation stage. They're not going to engage in active processing of the message you're going to deliver until they feel like they can trust you to disagree. They feel like they can, you can, they need to feel that they can disagree with you and nothing bad will happen. Mm -hmm. So that's got to be upfront. Now that, it's very easy with strangers. You can establish trust very quickly with strangers. And then you be, be transparent, be open, ask their consent and say, I'd like to explore uh, this topic with you. I'd like to hear what you think about it. I'd like to kind of figure out where you're coming from on all this. And, and if that's okay with you, you may even change your mind by the end of this conversation. If you're all right with it, would you be willing to have this conversation with them? They agree to all that and you're transparent. You just ask for a very specific claim. If it was, I believe the earth's flat, that's what you would say. Like, what is give me a specific claim in there. They say, well, I believe the earth is flat. Once you get that claim, repeat it back to them in their own words. They may tell you all sorts of things. They may, they may be very elaborate and you need to make, try to repeat it back in a way that shows you really have, you really do understand where they're coming from. 
this borrows a little bit from the feel felt found method of, of, of approaching people. It also borrows from all sorts of therapeutic models where it's important to reflect, to, to paraphrase and reflect back what they're telling you. If they say that you, you've done a good job and they're satisfied, now you need to clarify their definitions. Like some people, you may be talking about something like the government and, and you think you're talking about the same thing because you might have like a civics textbook idea of what governments are. And their idea of the government is maybe completely different. They may think that it's like a smoke-filled room where they divide the country up and all that sort of thing. So you want to make sure you have the same definitions and then use their definitions, not yours. And then after that, the, this is the, the crucial moment. You need a numerical measure of their confidence or, or their certainty, zero to 100, zero to 10, something like that, where you know all the way on one end is absolute certainty and all the way on the other end is zero certainty. This is important for... A couple of reasons. One, if it's a contentious issue like gun control, where at the job there could be something that's happening, so that's that's there's a lot of emotions wrapped up in it. They may know that by telling you where they are on that scale, it could cause you to think poorly of them. And if they, it's important for them to tell you on that scale, and then your reaction to it isn't, "Oh my God, oh, what's wrong, wrong with you?" <laughs> right? So that's that's important. The other thing is, this is the way we're going to to encourage metacognition because this is a tool for exploring. You can just try this right now. Like, let me think of a movie like the last Avengers movie. Like, like where would you put yourself on a scale? Like, like from one to 10, uh, how much you like that movie. And then it's weird. Like, when you ask somebody to put a number on it, like you start to feel yourself thinking about it in a different way. You might've just before said, I liked it. But if I ask you like, yeah, but how much, like one to 10, zero mm -hmm. to 10, you say, I use a little seven. It feels different. It feels like a totally new thought that you hadn't had before. Yeah, there's more effort for sure. It's like, well, it's certainly Absolutely. not as good as The Dark Knight. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, you know, you put it yourself on The Dark Knight? Or I would say it's, it's, you know, it's a nine. It's not perfect. It's a nine. Like, so where's the Avengers then if that's a nine? I'm like, oh, well, I mean, it was good. I enjoyed it. Seven, six, seven, seven, six. You can feel that process mm -hmm. that's taking place. That You can do that with any topic. What do you feel about this new policy we put in at work? Like on a, from one to 10, like 10 is the best thing ever it was. One, we should never have done it. Well, you know, and they start having that action, that reaction. Or it could be about a contentious wedge issue. Like, what do you feel about uh, vaccines or gun control? So once you have that number out there, you then you want to ask, what reasons do you have to hold that level of confidence? Or why does that number feel right to you, basically? And this is when you hand off this conversation to the other person. This is the part that allows all of this to work because no longer are you trying to copy and paste your reasoning into them. You're evoking their reasoning out into the world, which may have never happened for them before. This may be their first chance to actually have a true opinion about it. So you mm -hmm. ask for their reasons. Like, well, I feel that it's a seven because this, this, this. It may not be the actual reason like we covered earlier, that doesn't matter. It's just important they're thinking about it that way. And then once they put a reason out there for you to discuss, ask what method are you using? You don't, you don't have to word it this way. I'm telling you broad, broad strokes here, but you, you want to ask in a very natural way, what method are you using to arrive at that, 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 that is a good reason for having that number. So you can already feel we're three chain. This is a three dot chain, right? Mm -hmm. You have a number, you have a reason. What's the method? And you ask it in such a way that you are easily guiding that person backwards all the way back to foundations. And then hopefully, like in, in the best cases, 
the the most sudden changes, the the things closest to a complete flip happen where a person realizes they did, they weren't using a very good method, a good epistemology to 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 like sort out the reason. And that's it. You from that point forward, just repeat all three of those over and over again, especially the method part. Listen carefully, be a non-judgmental, empathetic listener, summarize, repeat, and help them sort it out. Just be a guide to help them sort through all of that. And when you reach a point where it feels natural, you can wrap up and wish them well. You may have to do this 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 several times, but just engaging a person in that way almost guarantees that they will see the the issue differently than they saw it before that conversation, which seeing something differently than that you did before is changing your mind. But moving your attitude one way or the other is changing your mind and moving your certainty up and down is changing your mind and moving your idea of what is and is not important is the way to change your mind. And all of those things can take place in this particular framework. Ooh, that's, that's beautiful. Well, David, could we role play and see in action right now? So that's the method. Some conversations like the one we're having, like the character you're presenting is a person who you can tell when there are moments when like they're admitting to themselves maybe they haven't considered this very deeply or they're admitting themselves they're using epistemologies that aren't very rigorous. But usually at that point, a person starts to feel a little bit of reactance and there's a, they don't want to lose face in front of the other person. They need time to, to think about it on their own and let it flourish, let it blossom inside of them. The key thing is to never get into an argumentative frame. And that's what I was avoiding at every step of the way. Yeah. And so they, they typically want to have three conversations with a person and that's, they do, they often keep up with them. I think they, they spreadsheet it out. They make sure they do contact them again. And on an issue like this, where like, if you're the street epistemologist, if you're not a climate expert and you know, we're avoiding talking about facts anyway, you have to admit to yourself that like, there are good points on the other side, like, and you have to bring, bring those points forward. But the idea is to like establish a good dynamic in which we're both trying to kind of figure out how would we understand this thing or how are we using good ways of, are we parsing the, the data well? Are we using new source? Are we actually using new sources? Are we experts? And I hope that some of that was coming through in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, thank you. That is handy in terms of indeed at no point you're like, you realize you're going to get us all killed, right? <laughs> like, oh, so you're a climate denier. That's what you are. Oh, okay. I know all I need to know about you. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yes, so non-argumentative, and it, it does indeed feel open. And I guess as I reflect on this conversation, it's it's refreshing and it's different from, I guess, what you see in politics on both sides. It's just like the other side is very bad and wrong and evil, and we need to do to demolish and defeat them, <laughs> is, is the vibe you, you get when you look at U.S. political discourse in 2022. Yeah, I mean, like... Uh... I talk about, I use the, the dress in the book is to, to write, demonstrate that let, with the dress, you know, some people saw it as black and blue. Some people saw it as white and gold, but you had no choice in the matter. Like that's just what your brain resolved it to be. And if you got into an argument with someone about, no, it's this way, no, it's the other way, you'd never get an opportunity to have the kind of conversation where you could ask, like, I wonder why we see it differently. Or I wonder why other people would see it differently than you, which opens you up to this introspection and also this critical thinking frame of like, hmm, I do wonder what is the nature of disagreement? And you miss some little voice inside you says, oh yeah, I could be wrong about this. Or, oh yeah, it's difficult to be certain of anything. And there are reasons why people think, feel, and believe things. And with addressables, because the more exposure you have to sunlight, the more time you spend in in the daylight or you work around windows, 
the more you assume when something's overexposed, it's overexposed in the blue side of the spectrum. And the more time you spend around incandescent light, which is mostly yellow light, the more you assume something is overexposed in the yellow side. So the picture itself was very ambiguous as to what it, it was overexposed, but it was ambiguous as to what was causing the overexposure. And so a person's experiences with different kinds of light sources determined what they subtracted from the image, resulting in two completely different ways of seeing that thing. But the same thing takes place in politics or even an issue like climate change, like we were discussing. All the experiences that person's had up to that moment, this is an issue that's uncertain and ambiguous and requires some expertise to understand. So to come to any conclusion on it, you're going to have to use something that comes from your priors. In the character you were communicating to me just now, this person was using ideas of trust, this ideas of where the money goes. Like that's something that's that you can understand. That's something you can use to determine whether or not I feel very strongly about this. But mm-hmm. one of the parts of the technique is that comes from motivational interviewing is always ask the other person, if they're a five, why are they not a four? Or if they're a four, why are they not a three? And what happens often is that the they have to present an argument for not going that way. And then you take that argument and that's what you uh, pump your energy into, into yeah. giving them the ability to articulate, oh, and that usually they'll go up. What I didn't do is ask you, were you on the scale again? Because that's usually how you measure that you've had some sort of effect. But it, it didn't seem in, in that particular conversation that the person on the other side was ready to reevaluate because the thing that was coming to the fore was, oh, I am not an expert and it would be difficult to become an expert on this and I haven't read a lot about this. And I, so therefore my opinion isn't really on the strong foundation. And that needs to mature in the other person before you take it to the next level. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I liked how, I guess you also determined that if I have skepticism associated or the character has skepticism associated with moneyed interests, then that really could be an interesting uh point in terms of, hey, get a load of these people who walked away from tons of money <laughs> by going to the other side. It's like, oh, huh. So there are, there are some folks who made this call based on convictions that, that cost them something. That's sort of persuasive. Or you could go with oil and gas companies or politicians that are supported by them. They have vested interests. And you know, so the conspiracy could be on the other side if there is something like that afoot, or there just is human activity that's based more off of like, I need to stay rich and live in have a nice car and live in a nice house. So you could always take that because that's more like that's the fundamental attitude. That's the fundamental anxiety. That's the fundamental skepticism that's at play. And it it's something that could be applied on either side of this dynamic, this this issue, and could move a person from a four to a five, or at least put them into the state. The street epistemologists, they often say like their goal is not to change the other person's mind. Their goal is to encourage that person to use critical thinking or encourage that person to examine how they come to certainty at all. If they happen to change their mind in the conversation, that's one thing, but that's not what they're attempting to do. It's just a happy happenstance if it does happen. So, but that they're, it's more about, did I encourage that person to think in a new way about this particular issue? Mm-hmm. Well, David, thank you so much. Good stuff. Let's, uh, let's hear about some of your favorite things now. <laughs> you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring. It's attributed to Mark Twain. Probably you didn't say it like most things attributed to Mark Twain. Uh, it's not what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. I like that one a lot. Mm-hmm. And a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Cur- uh, oh, one of my f- absolute favorite studies is uh, this coin flip experiment done by uh, Tversky. <laughs> Kahneman and Tversky is one of their old ones. You have a person flip a coin 
uh, you tell them you flipped a coin. It's all on paper. And you say, you flipped a coin. If it comes up heads, you win $200. If it comes up tails, you lose $100. And that's the situation. And then you divide people into two groups. One group, you tell them the outcome of the coin flip and you randomize it. And then you ask them, would you like to flip the coin again under the same conditions? And everybody chooses to flip it again. Because and, and you ask them why, they say, some will say, but if it didn't come up in their favor, they say, I need to flip the coin again to win back the money I lost. And if it did come up in their favor, they say, I need to flip the coin again because I'm ahead and I can risk it. So either way, they come up with a justification for flipping the coin a second time. However, in the other group, you don't tell them the outcome of the coin toss. And if you do that, nobody chooses to flip the coin a second time, hmm. which is incredible because we already know from the other group, it wouldn't matter which way it comes up. You would have chosen to flip it. But if I don't give you the information required to justify flipping it a second time, you won't do it because you can't do it. Because there's a mountain of evidence that suggests we don't make the decision that is the quote unquote best. We make the decision that is easiest to justify. And if we're denied the opportunity to justify, we just won't make a decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's not fun. It's like, well, I mean, I mean I, nothing's going to happen if I tell you to flip a coin again. So like, yeah, I'm a, we're assuming you did or didn't win the money, but I'm not telling you yet till you flip it a second time. And okay. most people just say, well, I don't want to do that. Okay. And a favorite book? Fiction. I love uh, Joe. It's really good Southern fiction from Larry Brown. It felt like the, the South of my childhood, but also it felt like the things that I'd noticed and felt about the people I lived around was they were in there in a way that I'd never felt before in a book. So it was great. And I still love it. And nonfiction, you know, I always tell people get, if you're interested in this world that I talk about, start with Incognito. It's a really great book by David Eagleman talking about how the conscious part of our existence, of our organism is only a small part of what the brain does. It's like the stowaway on, on the Titanic, whereas the rest of the stuff we do is un we're unaware of it. But here recently, and I mentioned earlier, something that's just been humongous for me as far as nonfiction goes is the enigma of reason. It's not an easy read, but it, it sure will change the way you see yourself and other people. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? I love notability on the iPad. It's become a super tool for me because I, I have to read a lot of studies and I used to keep them in legal boxes and then mark them up with a pen and then have to have labels and all that kind of stuff. Now I use Notability. I just import the PDF. I mark it up. It goes into a category. It's in buckets. I can refer to it anytime. And if you just want to take regular old notes, it's incredible because you can manipulate the notes like you would with like Photoshop or something. And you can cut things out, paste them, enlarge, embiggen. You can speak directly into it and it dictates it. It's, you can circle things and then turn it into uh, hand written into text in a type. And I use it in interviews now because I connect, I connect a lavalier mic to my iPad and I take notes while the other person's talking to me. And when I go back to the document, if I touch my note in any place, wherever that note at is at, it moves the audio to that part of the conversation. It's an incredible tool. It's really, really force multiplied the way I do my job. Mm -hmm. And a favorite habit? Well, I lost a hundred pounds over COVID. And the, and the habit was uh, tracking calories. The, the reason I did that, I did a lecture and somebody in the audience or somebody who watched it on YouTube commented 
they said, uh, I don't know why you would listen to this guy about anything. He's, you know, he's a fat dude. So like, uh, he, like, I'm not going to listen to critical thinking advice from a guy that can't eat right. I obviously hurt my feelings, but I also was like, fair enough. So I should probably, uh, apply something to this from the world of what I do. And I asked a couple of experts, uh, just on the side after, inter after interviews and the tracking your calories religiously was something that kept coming up and I got an app. doesn't really matter what app you use, but the habit is to like everything. I mean, like you put a little creamer in your coffee at it, every single little tiny thing you put in your body goes in there. It is astonishing how overboard your calories are without your realization of it. You just really kind of have this intuition that, eh, that wasn't that bad when you go, when you go over the line pretty easily changes everything for me. I was able to lose a hundred pounds using that technique. Okay. Is there a key nugget you share that seems to connect and resonate with folks? It's Kindle book highlighted and retweeted, et cetera. Hmm. Well, in the, in the most recent book, a lot of people, the early interviewers are talking about debates have winners and losers and nobody wants to be a loser. So the most important thing is to have a conversation where you try to get at why is it, do we disagree on the issue? Mm -hmm. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? All of my stuff on my podcast is under you are not so smart, you are not so smart.com. And that's the name of the podcast. How Minds Change is just the name of the book, and you can find information about everything I do from lectures to consulting to books and everything else at just at davidmcraney.com. Mm -hmm. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah. It's a thought experiment that my friend Will Storr created, and it goes like this. Ask yourself, are you right about everything? And you know, some people are going to say, yes, that is a whole issue that you got to work on, my friend. But let's assume you're like uh, the rest of us and you say, no, if the answer is no, ask yourself, what are you wrong about? And if the answer to that is, I don't know, ask yourself why you don't know and how you would correct that. I think that's useful in any job. All right, David, thank you. This has been a treat. I wish you much luck with your book, How Minds Change and all you're up to. I appreciate it, man. Thank you for all your patience and uh, for your participation and your willingness to get into weird territory. I think that's fantastic. I love so much of what David had to say in terms of not going into it with an I'm right and you're wrong dominance, but rather, hey, let's evaluate how we came to these conclusions and see why it is that we have a differing point of view here. Very powerful. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items that we've mentioned are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP780. And if you want to hear our role play, well, please check out that other segment there and you can do so. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers. 
hunt for muddy puddles and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.